Amen. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Grace City. If I haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here and being a part of our community this morning. For the past, goodness, almost three months, we have been going through uh, the, God, the book of Mark, the Mark's gospel. And we have been seeing the progression of the disciples as they are uh, growing, uh, deepening their understanding of who Jesus is and what he's, come, what he's come to do, what he's come to accomplish. But along the way, we're seeing how every time they have their expectations of who Jesus is or what he's going to do, how Jesus kind of defies those expectations. And so that uh, misunderstanding or clarifications of those false assumptions is what we're seeing a pattern of of confession, repentance, and growth for the disciples. And we've seen this, again, for the past three months because they first began to follow Jesus and they saw him as a teacher or rabbi. And then they saw he's not just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He's also a prophet. But he's not just a prophet. He's also the Christ. He is the Messiah. And then we saw how Jesus began to define for them what it meant for him to be the Christ, what it meant for him to be the Messiah as he embraces his role as son of man and then as son of David. And today we we see the, the sixth, and final role, title, or office that Jesus occupies, if you will, in the Gospel of Mark. Because today we'll see Jesus embrace and exemplify and really demonstrate the truth that he is the Son of God. And so we're going to see this play out uh, at, at the end of Mark's gospel. And so here's the thing. If, if today's your first day coming to Grace City, you're coming in at the very end of, of our series. We've been looking at all six of these different titles. And, and so uh, I, I hopefully that kind of caught you up where we are in, in the series. But we're seeing how Mark's going to draw... Uh, bringing all of his gospel kind of to a close, if you will, by drawing our attention to who Christ is as the Son of God. And then, uh, and then we'll see next week uh, the hope of the resurrection as we wrap up Mark's gospel. But today we're starting in Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus has been betrayed and arrested. He's in front of the high priest and they are trying, he's in front of the high priest, he's in front of a religious council and they're trying to convict him of blasphemy so they can murder him so they can put him on the cross, so that they can put him to death. Unknowingly, these actions are going to set in stage, are going to set in, in, in motion the greatest redemptive act in the course of, of all eternity. And once more, the testimony that Jesus gives in his trial will serve the purposes of Christ to help all begin to further see and understand who Christ is and what he's done, what he will do. Because you see, it's in the trial where Jesus gets asked a question that is it's kind of the question. He gets asked a, a question that, that it's asked by the high priest, but I think everyone gathered there, including the disciples, wanted this question asked of Jesus. And I think it's a question that, that you or I, had we been there, we would want this question asked of Jesus. Maybe it's a question that, that you wish you could ask Jesus right now, this morning. And, and so it's a question that the high priest gives for us. And it's one that's, it's focused on the identity of Jesus. It, it's again, it's focused in on his essence. It's focused in on, on kind of the role uh, he is, he claims to be. Because if we can understand this, right? If we can understand what, what Jesus is, uh, what he, who he claims to be, what he claims to do, then this is going to help us track along with, okay, is this someone worthy of my faith? Is this someone worthy of my belief? Or do I need to reject him and, and turn and go find hope elsewhere? And so this is a question that the high priest gives that I think it's one that so many wanted asked of Jesus. And it's found in Mark chapter 14, verse 61. After putting numerous questions in front of Jesus and kind of getting some frustrating responses, not the ones that he wants, finally, he just kind of frustratingly asked this question of Jesus. Are you the Messiah, 
the son of the blessed one? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now, this is the question, right? Because he's just asked Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? Now, he's the high priest, so he, he uses a different title for God. He uses son of the blessed one. He's the high priest. He's going to protect the reverence of the name of the Lord. And there's no way he wants to bring up God's name in the midst of a trial with a suspected criminal that could end up with someone on the cross. And so in this conversation, he's just going to use, are you the, the son, or are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? But make no mistake, this is the question, the defining question that we want to ask of Jesus. Are you the Messiah? the son of the blessed one. Interestingly enough, it's actually the question that Jesus asked of his followers. If you remember a couple weeks ago where we looked at Jesus's interaction with Peter, he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And here it's the exact same question asked of Jesus. Who do you say that you are? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the son of God? It's a question that's needed I do think the question, it's, it's needed for so many reasons because in this moment, in this setting, everything is just counterintuitive for the, for the high priest, for maybe the disciples that are watching for a distance, for all the crowds that are, have gathered because it just, nothing is making sense in this moment. Because Jesus has been arrested by the religious leadership of the day and if he's this Messiah, this, this son of God, then, then why is the religious leadership, the, the group that's tasked with helping people know the Lord and grow in their love for them, why, is, why are they working against him? And so, but yet they are. They're conspiring against Jesus, not just by themselves, they're actually working with a pagan, Gentile, uh, corrupt governmental system in the Roman Empire. The religious leadership has decided to turn a blind eye to them so they can have their way with Jesus. And so you've got Jesus, who's now the victim of an oppressive regime and a hypocritical religious leadership. And so with that happening, it's just like, okay, if he's the Messiah, if he's the son of God, why wouldn't he stop it? Why wouldn't he stop this? Why, why, wouldn't, he, why wouldn't he stop it in its tracks? Because in every way, it looks like Jesus is losing. In every way, it looks like he's not in control. It looks like he is not sovereign. It looks like his purposes are being thwarted rather than being accomplished. It looks like he's not who he says he is or who he claims to be. And so it's a question that's needed. We've seen this over the past few weeks, haven't we? How whenever we have our expectations for Jesus and it doesn't go the way of our expectations, that, those are those moments where our doubts come to the surface, where our questions rise. And, and I don't know if we need to be too critical of ourselves. In a, I mean, we do need to be critical of ourselves in that moment. But we see in, in Scripture, we see this is a pattern for, for humans who are limited in our knowledge, limited in our wisdom. Like, for instance, John the Baptist. Jesus said of John the Baptist, greatest born among men. He's a forerunner to Christ. He's the prophet who came before Jesus. So he was the one that first, more, before anybody else, said, look, behold, the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. So he has that faith. He has that belief. He has that trust in Jesus. He's recognized him as the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. And, and he's, he's, his faith was even commended by Christ. But at the end of his life, he finds himself in a prison cell under a death sentence because of the request of a stripper. And that's how this guy's life's gonna end. And while he's sitting in his prison cell thinking, this is not the way I thought my life was gonna go. <laughs> like these are, this is not going according to expectation. It's there where, where some of those doubts 
Some of those questions come to the surface, they come to the forefront, so much so where he sends some of his disciples to go to Jesus and say, hey, are you really the one? Same question, isn't it? Same question the high priest is asking. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we're looking for? Or should we look for someone else? And Jesus answers the disciples of John and says, hey, you go back and you go tell them what what you're seeing happen in my ministry. He basically says, look, you go back and you show them how the blind are receiving sight, the lame are walking, which would be a way of Jesus saying, look, you are seeing the prophecy of the Messiah being fulfilled in me. So Jesus affirms his identity and his claim, affirms his Messiahship, if you will, to John the Baptist in that way. And so that message goes back to John the Baptist. Did it get him out of prison? No. But with that answer, John the Baptist knew that his life was well spent. Is spent in service of Christ and service of the kingdom of God. But that story is, I don't know if it should or shouldn't be, but that story is encouraging to me because you have of John the Baptist, who Jesus says, greatest born among men, it shows just a tremendous amount of faith that even in that moment, we see that mixture of belief and unbelief, right? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a story where a father is praying to Jesus and says, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And so even in John the Baptist, we see that mixture because he had his expectations and they didn't quite go there. And so, yeah, those questions come up and it's, Hey, are you the one? Do we need to be looking for someone else? That's why I think that the disciples also wanted the high priest to ask this question of Jesus. Because at this moment, at the end of their journey with Christ, it's just, it's not going the way of their expectations either, right? They, they've recognized him to be the Messiah. They've recognized him to be the Christ. And when we've talked about how they've, they view him as, as that. And, and even last week, we, when we we're talking about kind of his role as son of David, that, that Jesus is kind of the one that, not kind of, he is the one who's ushering in the kingdom of God. But still for the disciples at this point, like they have in mind this earthly kingdom full of glory that's gonna overthrow Rome. So, Rome, so they have in mind crowns and kingdoms. And so the Jesus of the triumphal entry, yeah, they're tracking with that Jesus. This is Palm Sunday, right? We talk, you know, this is a day that celebrates the week before Easter when Christ comes into Jerusalem and he comes in in victory. He comes in in glory. He finally allows all the crowds to recognize him as the Messiah. And they're, they're worshiping, they're praising, they're, they're shaking palm branches. They're putting cloaks in front of him. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And if you've been at Grace City with us in years past, and we've focused in on that story, we've talked about how all of that is imagery and symbolism that's really calling for war. It's a battle cry. Hosanna, we're, we're, we're wanting the revolution to happen, to, th- to march on Rome, to throw off Rome for this to finally take place. And so when the disciples are watching this happen with Jesus and he's getting the rock star treatment, you know they have to be like, finally, finally, he's getting the due and the recognition he deserves. And when this happens, when we beat Rome, we'll be in the right position to get the governorship or viceroys or princes, whatever. Like we'll get the payoff then. But perhaps you know the story. That's a week before the cross. After that triumphal entry, things start to turn, right? The crowds start to dwindle. And those that originally had, had recognized him and worshiped him as such, as the week goes on, there's so many people that begin to turn against Jesus to where right before his, or during his arrest, so many crowds gather chanting, crucify him. There was a, a rejection of who Christ was. Once more, that during throughout that whole time, and, and really even before the triumphal entry, Jesus had still been talking to his disciples saying, hey, there is a crucifixion. 
This is good. There, there's crucifixion and there's resurrection. And so the disciples, like they can, they can kind of reconcile the triumphal entry. That's where they are. But now a week later, Jesus is arrested before the high priest and he's been talking about crucifixion. And now it's looking like that's going to happen. It's looking like that is going to take place. And so this just doesn't compute. So are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And I, I think before we get critical of the people who missed it in this context, again, we can miss it in our own, right? Because when, when Jesus defies our expectations, that's when our doubts and questions come. You know, we, we can see uh, just, again, when he doesn't move the way we think he should, that, that, that's where they come. So like we, we see uh, when the tragedy happens, right? When the sickness isn't cured, when the injustice happens, when evil seemingly goes unchecked, those are all things where we think, okay, God, if, if you're good and you're loving, aren't you, shouldn't you be happening to this? Like, why is all this still here? And so we have these expectations, and when we don't see him working the way that we prescribe, the way that we think he should, that's, again, that's where those questions come. And so maybe seeing some of that has, has kept you from saying, you know what, it's kept me from starting in a relationship with Christ. I have all these questions, and I just can't get past them. And so maybe it's, it's kept you uh, from, from taking that step. Or maybe you've started in that relationship with Christ, and all this brokenness and, and, and uh, suffering in the world around you, or maybe even in your own life has, has brought you to a point where you're just maybe stagnant a little bit, where there's that mixture again, right? I do believe, but I've got some unbelief, and I need you to help me overcome that unbelief as well. And so I think, again, I'm glad. I'm glad the high priest asked this question of Jesus, because I need his answer. I need Christ's answer. Look at how he replies, chapter 14, verse 62. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, yes. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? Yes. Emphatically, without reservation, Jesus says, I am. Now, he knows there's still some uh, misunderstandings. There's some misconceptions. There's false expectations. So he continues to echo some of the clarifications that we've seen over the past few weeks. And we see him go straight to the, the two that we've looked specifically over the past two weeks. He references the son of man, and then he hits on his role as son of David. The first one's easy to see, the son of man. It's, it's there in the text. You'll see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one. And so with that, if you were with us two weeks ago, when, when Matt took us through this title, we see how this was one of Jesus's favorite titles for himself. He constantly used this of himself because this title, Son of Man, allowed him to, to really express, articulate, and embrace his full humanity with his full deity all in one title. Uh, and, and with that, he, this was the title that oftentimes Jesus used when he talked about the suffering that the Son of Man would experience. Because as he talks about himself being the son of man, he begins to teach the disciples, hey, death is going to be a part of this. There's going to be a time where I'll suffer and when I will die. But it's not going to end in death. I will be crucified, but it's not going to end in defeat. I'm going to live again. So he, would, he began to teach the disciples that suffering, death, crucifixion, part of the plan. Once more, he would say that's not only part of the plan for my life. But if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, 
then you too must take up your cross and come after me. And so Jesus begins to teach the disciples about the way of following Christ, that there's going to be service and, and loving sacrifice in, in uh, Christ's kingdom and in service of others. So he begins to even introduce this, this notion, this topic of discipleship in and through this title. But it's a, it's a title that he uses to introduce, once again, this concept of suffering. So here, when he's in front of the high priest and he's in front of this religious council, and it's in front of the trial, he uses this title to connect himself back to the teaching that he had given about the prediction of his rest, crucifixion, and resurrection. So it should have been a, hey, there's more happening in this moment than you can perceive. There's more happening in this moment than you can perceive. Like it it would be a, a reminder that more is unfolding because when they're in that trial and that cross is looming, there'd be such a like the tyranny of the urgent would be there, right? Like the pressing needs, uh, uh, the pressing needs of the uh, pressing immediate needs that would be on the forefront of everyone's mind that the cross is coming, death is there. And so that might be all they could perceive in that moment. But no, Jesus is, is reminding them that look, this is, it's more than a moment. It's more than a day. This is going to impact all of eternity because Jesus is willingly becoming the sacrifice for the sins of man. He is God in the flesh, allowing himself to, sacri- to be sacrificed and to die on behalf of fallen sinful humanity. So he is the son of man. And so he brings back that title, but then he, he hits one more time on his role as son of David. And that comes with kind of the description that he gives, son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of, of heaven. Last week, Stevie took us through this role of seeing Jesus as, as son of David and how uh, David is part of the messianic line of David, part of that king, kingly role for, for all of God's people. And so it's showing that Jesus is the one who's ushering in the kingdom of God. But remember, this different type of kingdom different type of kingdom. This is not an earthly kingdom that's gonna you know, march on Rome and overthrow Rome, but it is a heavenly kingdom that has earthly ramifications. It is a heavenly kingdom that has earthly ramifications because the kingdom of God that Christ ushers in uh, reveals the brokenness, the sinfulness, the injustice that resides in the hearts of humanity and shows us our need for confession and repentance and trust in him. And so Jesus, as son of David, as the reigning king, he he does what kings do. He's a righteous judge over the sins of humanity, sitting at the right hand of the mighty one. It's describing, picturing his authority, his role as he reigns in that function. But also, Jesus, in, in this description, He's reaching into the Psalms to accentuate his claim. Uh, this is uh, the, the verbiage that we have here is referencing Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. Uh, again, last week, Stevie uh, showed another instance in Christ's life where he reached back to Psalm 110. So this is at least the second time that Jesus uses that psalm to describe who he is and what it is that he's come to do. And I want you to, to see the whole of this psalm. Go to Psalm 110. It's just seven verses. Um, but uh, to me, it's, um, it's just cool. Can I just say it like that? <laughs> like, it's, just, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's almost as if Jesus is he's redefining, clarifying, helping them. He's living out Psalm 110 as he's before the high priest. Let's just read it. This is written by David. Messianic Psalm, so it's, even, it's a prediction about the son of David. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
stop here. Uh, the high priests that were, would be hearing this, the religious counts that are listening on, even the Pharisees that are gathered, that have gathered, they know the text backwards and forwards, right? They know scripture. They've memorized huge chunks of scripture, but they don't recognize them by like Psalm 23 or Psalm 51 or Psalm 110. They know the Psalm, those, those numbers came later. They know the Psalms by the start of the first line. And so they would know the Psalm with the, verse, the first verse, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So when Jesus has that in his response, it's, hey, this Psalm is about me. This Psalm is about me, my role, what I've come to do. So let's keep reading. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Who's he surrounded by? The high priest is there. The religious council is looking on. He's surrounded by accusers. He's surrounded by those who are, are wanting to vilify him. And yet Jesus is still reigning. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your, on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. I, I think this psalm, well, it does two things for me. One, it helps me understand more how the disciples and how the high priest even um, were thinking earthly kingdom. Because, I mean, you, you read that, and there's, hey, there's earthly kingdom language in there, right? Like, okay, let's, let's mount up. We're going to lay waste all these other kingdoms, and we'll be the last one standing. But when, when Christ is before them, and he's be, been redefining all these terms, and he's been teaching them about how his kingdom is not of this earth, but it's a kingdom of heaven. And then he's actually saying, hey, this psalm is about me. He's helping them see, hey, Right now, I'm ruling in the midst of my enemies. So why you think I'm losing control? I am completely in control. This is happening according to my plan. This is happening the way that I'm scripting. This is happening the way that we have set it in motion. So he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But as son of man, he will suffer and die. He is the son of God who is ushering in the kingdom of God, judging the world's sinfulness, brokenness, and corruption calling it to the righteousness, the holiness, and the virtues and the ethics of the kingdom of God. And yes, one day when the kingdom of God comes back in all of its fullness, then the corrupt, broken, sinful kingdoms of this world, all of them will be uh, submitted to him and to his reign and be put under his authority. But here, as, as, as Jesus is showing this and demonstrating this to the high priest and to all those looking on, so many of them just, they, they, didn't, they didn't get it. They weren't able to connect the dots. And so I'm grateful the high priest asked the question that we wanted because we need, like I need Jesus's response here, right? To say, I am, I am, I am the Messiah. I am the son of the blessed one. Like we need that emphatic, but it's, it's sad to me in this too because like they just, those gathered, they didn't, they didn't believe it. They didn't respond to his message and their actions reveal their lack of belief, right? Because the religious leadership, they continue on their quest to crucify him. The disciples, they continue to abandon him. And so, you know, Jesus is literally about to pick up his cross and instead of staying with him and following after him and picking up theirs and coming after him, they, they flee and they run and they abandon. So with that, it shows that they reject Jesus as son of man who, uh, who allows for death and resurrection to be a part of his plan. The religious leaders reject seeing Jesus as the returned son of David. And I would say that both the disciples and the religious leaders at this point are, are rejecting seeing Jesus as God because it looks like God's about to die. It looks like God is headed for a cross. 
it looks like God is going to be hanging on a stake. And there's no way that can happen to God. Can it? Genesis 22 tells a heart-wrenching, soul-stirring story of when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, in the time of Abraham, this notion of child sacrifice was was not a new concept. There are other pagan religions that were doing it, but God had never asked for anything like this. Once more, like, it was just such a strange request, well, strange request for so many reasons, not the least of which, that Isaac was a gift from God. You see, Abraham was 100 years old, and his wife Sarah was 90 years old when Isaac was born. They had been unable to have children, and then God miraculously gives Isaac to this family. But yet now God is asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. It's, just, it's, a, it's a request completely out of character for God, right? I mean, we think that's out of God's character. That's out of God's, um, it just, it's just out of normalcy for God to ask this of Abraham. Yet it's going to be an extreme test of Abraham's faith. And we see when you read that story, there's really an indication all throughout the story that Abraham somehow, someway was believing that God was going to work, believing that God was going to to. to to make it right or do something like he he talks about hey we're gonna go worship and we are gonna come back so like he's believing that he and he and Isaac will come back somehow some way and so we see his faith being tested and sure enough uh he, he gets the place of sacrifice and God provides a sacrifice there's a ram in a thicket and so Isaac is spared and there's so much that's being taught about that story we you know Abraham realizing how much faith he has in the Lord Abraham realizing um that the Lord is right to be trusted, the Lord demonstrating to any and to all that he is markedly different than these other pagan religions that man imagined would require this type of extreme sacrifice. And so just all of that is happening in the story. And when you read Genesis 22, so many times we focus in on the faith of Abraham and to be sure, because there's so much to learn from that, but we cannot overlook the role that Isaac plays in this story. We cannot overlook the role that Isaac plays in this story. And because with that, uh, like when I re- read the story for so long, I always kind of imagined Isaac being a, a young boy. But uh, most scholars uh, have uh, Isaac uh, older. In fact, uh, many scholars have him at around 20 years old when the sacrifice happens, 20 years old when this account takes place. And so, um, yeah, so do that math and really think that through. So Isaac's 20, his dad's 120. I think he could outrun him. You <laughs> know, like. I think he could handle him in a fight, right? So when, when, when Abraham says, you know, we're going to go sacrifice, uh, we're going to go make a sacrifice, and, and when Isaac sees they haven't picked one out, and when Isaac realizes, oh, I'm the sacrifice, now Isaac has a choice. Am I, am I, am I going to follow? Am I going to follow my father's plan? And so you see this text is in, in a lot of Jewish circles is actually used to define and describe sonship because it shows the devotion of Isaac to his family, that he would be willing to obey his father's plan, that he'd be willing to be the sacrifice for his family. And so we see 
with Mark and his gospel and, 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 and with Matthew and Luke and John, all the gospels help us see um, that Jesus is God's only beloved son who's willingly walking himself to the place of death, just like Isaac, that he is the lamb that God's provided to take away the sins of the world. So with that, if, if you pull all that together, Jesus' sonship, if you'll let me still use that word, is, is seen in his willingness to be the sacrifice for others according to his father's plan. And so ultimately his sonship is recognized at the moment of his death when he fulfills his father's plan. And Mark accentuates this point in in, in an astounding confession in the crucifixion account. Go to Mark 15, 33 through 39. We're gonna see uh, Mark kind of put an an exclamation point at the end of this. Mark 15, 33 through 39. This is the crucifixion account. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's also the first line of Psalm 22. And so I'd encourage you this week, this Easter season, read Psalm 22. It will blow your mind that Jesus on the cross is basically saying, go read Psalm 22. You're gonna see it enacted here. And so uh, that's aside, do that in personal study. Verse 35, when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge of wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Of all the people in Mark's gospel, like the, 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 the one person um, that God inspires Mark to use to accentuate the point, to accentuate his message about who Jesus is, the, the one person that is used is the Roman centurion who helped put Jesus to death, right? It's not some glorious moment for Peter. It's not, it's not some glorious moment for the disciples. It's not a Pharisee who recognized Jesus as Messiah and now he's the son of God, but no, it's actually the Roman soldier who helped to murder Jesus. And how does it say that he came to this recognition when he saw how Jesus died? He makes this pronouncement not despite Jesus' death, but because of it. He watched. I mean, he would have been able to be there and see the sham of a trial and see the arrest and see the crucifixion. He saw Jesus put one foot in front of another and walk to his cross, embracing the role that he was there to fulfill and to complete the action that, knew, uh, that he knew was his to complete. When he saw how he died, he saw this man. This man was the son of God. This Roman soldier was, was able to, you know, this, this Roman soldier makes this confession for us. And so, with, I mean, we, we, we see all of it coming together, right? We see all this, all of Mark's gospel driving to this because it's showing how Jesus comes into brokenness, comes into suffering, comes into the evilness in this world, is surrounded by it, looks to be defeated by it, yet this Roman soldier is able to see what's unfolding around him. He sees the work of God in it and says, surely this man was the son of God. And he's right, he's right. I mean, this, this, the lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. The Jewish readers would be able to, to see this and see this as Isaac faithfully devoted to his father's plan, but on an eternal level because Jesus is devoted to his heavenly father's plan. So you see, he's not just a teacher. 
He's not just a prophet. He's also the Messiah. He's the son of man who is suffering and dying. He's the son of David who is reigning over God's eternal kingdom. And he is definitively the son of God who is fulfilling his father's plan to bring about redemption for the children that he wants to adopt into his family. And this Roman soldier puts an exclamation point on it for us all. Remember, Mark began his gospel. You know, we looked at this, you know, almost three months ago. Mark 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And here, we see it come full circle. There's some scholars that say this is actually kind of the, the end of Mark's gospel, that what follows is the epilogue. And I would say that's a pretty big epilogue <laughs> because we're going to see in the coming verses, we're going to see the resurrection and the hope that comes from it. But as Jesus hangs on the cross, it defies expectations. As God hangs on the cross, it challenges the assumptions about what he would do and what he would accomplish. And, and this is, there, I mean, there, there, are, there are a thousand different truths to pull out of this, right? There are a thousand different applications for all of this that we've walked through. But one of these, one of these that I see in this, that, I, that, I, that I seems like I wrestle with every time, especially this part of the Easter season, is because like, I don't know why I keep making the same mistake. Because again, there's so many times in my life where I try to map out for Jesus what he should do and how he should do it. Like this is how you need to work in my life. This is how you need to work. In my, I know you're good. I know you're loving, so this is how you need to work in my family. I know you restore. I know you renew. I know you redeem. So this is what I want to see you do in my city. This is what I want to see you do in my state. And so I map out for Jesus exactly what it should, how he should act, exactly what he should do. And when any one of those goes off, then that's the moment where for some reason I still let my unbelief grow instead of using that as a moment to check it and come back and deepen and cultivate my faith in him to be reminded because God has shown time and time and time and time again that he is sovereign, that he is accomplishing his plan even when we can't see it even when we can't perceive it because here when he's hanging on the cross in the midst of all the grief in the midst of all despair when seemingly evil was victorious and sinfulness would win Jesus was accomplishing the purposes of God and I think there's so many times where, where, where we need to draw on this hope for us right because I mean, like, I mean, we could go around the room and you could talk about that season of your life where you had more lament than praise. You could talk about that time in your life where you had more anguish than, than, than hope. And, and so we can look at those and say, okay, God, help us come back and to submit those tumultuous times in our life to you. And God, help us, help us. God, help us have an eternal perspective to see what it is that you're doing in and through those moments. Once more, God, give us the patience for when you will reveal that to us. Because we can pray for that eternal perspective, but I think so many times we want to be able to see how it's going to work, like by the time we say amen. Or we want to see how it's going to work one year from now. Or God, I'll give you five years. God, I might give you a decade. But God, help, God, help me see an eternal perspective. And God, grant me the patience that one day it might not be revealed to me till I'm in eternity looking back on the lens of this temporal place through your glory and your renown and your might and your victory. And then I will say, oh, oh, I see now. 
I see how you work. I see how you move. And I'll say praise. Praise to him for who you are and what you've done. And so when we're in those seasons, it's, it's God, give me an eternal perspective and give me the patience to wait for when that is revealed. And he, and he might begin to show you how, and, he, and it might be a quick answer. He might begin to show you how maybe it's a time of discipline and correction in your life. How it might be a season of face perfection where he's calling you to put your trust in him when maybe your fears are telling you that you shouldn't. But make no, doubt, make no mistake or have no doubt about it. Those are the times where that is the winter of our souls. But it's there we need to have the faith of the author who says, let the winter come. It's the only path to spring. You see, when we have that perspective on this, it allows us to look at this account in scripture and call it Good Friday because it's here where Christ is accomplishing the good purposes of his heavenly father, bringing about the forgiveness of sin and making a way for the family of God to be restored, to be redeemed, to be made whole. And so know this, next week we're gonna celebrate the empty tomb. We're gonna celebrate Easter Sunday and we will celebrate how Jesus snatched victory from defeat, hope from despair, life from the grave. But we need to pause and know here that the death comes first. And it's in the death where Jesus embraces his role as son of God and becomes the sacrifice for God's family. It is the winter that comes before the spring. And I pray that when we see this, that we too can have that statement of faith, I believe, and say, God, let the winter come. It's the only path to spring.